0: Hey, everybody, welcome to Why It Matters, the podcast for the dreamers and the driven. We're changing the world their way. Our guest this week is Sultan Ahmed. He created a company called LXL Ideas that uses film as a form to educate young people while also inspiring them to wonder what they want from life. In this episode, he shares reflections on his own experience with education.
1: And there's a very beautiful definition uh, of education that I've heard. When you've forgotten everything that you've learned in school and college, what remains is education.
0: Before we listen to the rest of the episode, everybody take a second to settle in, appreciate where you are, and take a deep breath with me. And now after the episode. And we are live, Sultan Ahmed. Welcome to Why It Matters.
1: Thank you so much, Luke. It's such a pleasure to be here with you.
0: And and for me as well. Um, I'm excited to, as we were talking about it briefly before we hopped on the live air, I'm excited to get into a topic that seems very unique in the world um, and very unique for yourself. And you seem like one of the people that's leading the space, um, and relating to education and film and this mixture of teaching and this new way of approach, especially to young people when they're in their formative years of how they can become people that they feel good about themselves. They f- feel fulfilled. And the other day I was watching, uh, I was listening to a podcast about someone talk about kids and young people. And they're saying that nowadays parents want their kids to be happy and they don't want their kids to be good people. And so I think it's a really interesting mix of how you create a space for to form and help young kids explore themselves to become what they want to be. Um, so I'm fascinated to get into how you what your approach is to that. Before doing so, I would love to learn a little bit about yourself. And I've been fortunate to start to interview people from different places around the world and so I'd love to learn like who is Sultan and where are you from and what has shaped you into doing the work in film and education that you do now
1: I belong to a city called Bangalore in India I've uh, I'm born here and I've done most of my education here the formative education here and uh, uh, you know I studied chemical engineering And I studied chemical engineering because my mother wanted me to become an engineer. And that's what almost every other parent in India wants you to be. I didn't have a choice in that matter. But the good thing that happened while I was studying engineering was that I was very good at public speaking. So I was representing my university for all kinds of debates and public speaking events. And it so happened that in one of the public speaking events, there was was a judge. And uh, obviously, I won that competition, like I did most competitions I participated in across the country. And she said, why don't you come over to school and, uh, you know, uh, help my children out in uh, public speaking. Mm. I thought it was a good idea. And the only question I asked her was, uh, would I get paid? And she said, yeah, you will get paid. And that's how my stint of working with students started around 20 years ago, when I went into a school to teach public speaking. While I was working with these uh, students who were not very, you know, much younger than me, they were just two or three years younger than me, some of them, I realized that it was not enough to just learn public speaking, there's something called as communication. You know, for one mouth, we've got two ears. that means you need to learn to listen better, to understand people better. So my public speaking programs became more on communication programs. And then I added things like, you know, team building, self-esteem, And eventually, it all landed up into becoming uh, programs on life skills. So 20 years ago, no one had heard of organized life skills programs in India, and I had started that. And it was around the same time that I realized that uh, you can't teach students. You know, this is one of my biggest learnings in 20 years of working with uh, millions of young people all over the world, that you actually can't teach uh, children and students but the interesting thing is that they learn. And my role as a facilitator, as a teacher, as an educator, or as a parent, is actually to create experiences, to provide an environment where learning happens. So if I have to put it another way, the role of a parent or an educator or a school is to create an environment, to create an experience. So to sum it all up, my work is all about creating experiences for children to learn about life. And that's how the name of my company comes, which is LXL Ideas, learning the X factor of life, because there's so much focus on academics uh, in schooling systems across, especially in India. And and I'm sure in the US, you're aware that the Indian kids love to get their their grades, like most Asian kids. They forget there's a life that they have to live. So my work Mm -hmm. is about, you know, living a good life. So that's me. It's been a journey for 20 years from... uh, Organizing events to running workshops to running uh, you know research programs for schools and for governments, uh, eventually moving on to film. So that's uh, that's what I've been doing all my life. It's been a fascinating and an exciting journey.
0: That's that's beautiful, and thank you for putting it that way. Because I have had experiences. I think myself born and raised in the U.S. is a different mindset that comes with education. Um, not for sure, definitely not all bad and but there is a lot of good. Um, and being I was in a school and a college where I got to meet people from different places around the world, a really great friend from Bombay in India. Um, and so got to see what his perspective was on education and how it shaped him and how he approached college and definitely did see that there's different things that you value based on what you've been taught at a young age, which is cool that that's the work that you're doing. Um, before hopping into that subject area, I'd love to step back and go back to the moment when maybe you first started to explore the space, had a realization in this space. And we're like, I'm going to, I'm going to take a little branch off this, this path that's been set up for me, because I think that's a really interesting place in life and a spot in life. that A lot of people that are doing things that quote unquote matter or, or doing something that's more entrepreneurial, there's this one specific, at least outstanding moment where you had to make a difficult decision to go down a different path. And so I'd love to hear from you, especially for people listening, they're like, I want to, whether it's, I want to create impact. I want to do something that's more meaningful with my job. I want to do blank. It's hard to make the jump into doing something like that, unless you're, you know, in college or you're not in college and you're going to go down that path and you know you're going to do it. Like, how do you, What was your mindset when you made that jump and what was your approach to saying, hey, I'm going to go try to do something and help teach young kids through film on how to explore themselves and their lives and their context better?
1: Right. So look, when I started off, you know, education was not an industry. You know, if you look at edtech today, it's one of the world's largest and most vibrant uh, entrepreneurial sectors to you know to have a startup in. Uh, Twenty years ago, it wasn't the case, and uh, the only people that landed up in the education spaces were either you started a school or you became a teacher, and there was nobody else. Hmm. And at that point of time, uh, you know, for you to walk in, and especially in a conservative country like India, and talk about. Uh, children participating in you know uh, overall development and life skills kind of events was was unheard of so when i started doing a lot of workshops uh, there was very tempting offers from the corporates right so if you were paid a dollar in a school the corporates were willing to pay you 10 dollars for the training programs that you did in the in the corporates and while i did do a few stints of corporate training at some point of time i had to take a call was do i want to do both focus on the K12 segment which is what my my passion lied and my love lied or start doing corporate training and working with the corporates because there's a lot of money there this is when i uh, you know had to make a very difficult choice and that choice became very easy for me because i remembered a wonderful example as a child while i was growing up uh, you know when we were little kids we used to go to this uh, family physician the doctor that the family went to and no matter what problem you had, you had fever, stomach ache. No matter what issue you had, you always landed up going to the family doctor. And the family doctor, caught, you know, you know, charged very little money, which is equivalent to probably a couple of dollars those days, uh, you know, in in Indian rupees. And in one of those occasions, as a little child, I remember my grandmother was uh, very unwell and she had some heart issue, and we took her to a heart specialist. And the the heart specialist consulted her for probably 10 minutes, five or 10 minutes, and he charged uh, her what was equivalent in those days of $100. So I turned around and asked my mom, saying that, you know, our family doctor, he only takes one or two dollars for all the problems that we have. Whereas here, and he talks to us a lot, spends more time. And here's this guy who hardly spent five, 10 minutes and he was charging us hundred dollars So my mom I mean, my mom told me something which is gonna stay with me for the rest of my life. She said that he's a specialist. He specializes in uh you know in in the cardio respiratory uh, systems. And being a specialist is very valued in this world. And I think that's when uh, that kind of you know, I remember it and I decided that I'm going to focus on the K-12 space on, on the kids domain, And uh, that was one of the key decisions that I had to take very early in my career, whether I go behind money or go behind uh, what I'm good at. And I'm glad I chose the latter because today when I look back, it's been both a very satisfying journey as well as a very enriching journey financially. And as a, a business venture, we've been extremely successful.
0: Thank you for sharing that story. Um, I think I've had range of my own experiences with my family and my parents specifically where it's like this i remember my mom was telling me about she was really unhappy and she graduated from college and moved to new york city and she nothing was really aligned in her life and so she left to go to boston for the weekend and essentially like left new york quit her job got to boston and had this kind of risky move in life but she just she always told me from that story like where there's a will there's a way and she found she had her will and she figured out her way with no job in place and all this stuff and that's a story and a lesson that i keep in myself is where there's a i, I deeply believe that where there's a will there's a way and you can really do anything that you set out to do if you really really believe it but i think families in integrating beliefs is super interesting. And I, I do feel like that relates to the work that you do. Um, and so before we got on or you mentioned this term film pedagogy. And so I would love to hear either if you feel a description of that term or what, what a high level description of your work is.
1: Right. So the evolution of the idea of using films in the education uh, purpose that we do to teach life skills and social emotional learning has been very organic. For the longest time, uh, like I mentioned that we started off by doing these life skills workshops in schools. Now, eventually after almost a decade of doing workshops, we had become one of the largest life skills training companies in South Asia, but the problem was that no matter what content and modules you created, the way it got delivered in the classroom depended on who was delivering it. So if I had 100 different trainers, they delivered it in 100 different ways. Mm. So consistency of quality was always a challenge that I was dabbling with as a head of the organization. Right, And the other thing was also attrition rates. I mean, not just in India, anywhere in the world, you train some good people and then eventually there are organizations waiting to pluck them out. Uh, so I was battling attrition and consistency of quality. On the other hand, uh, I was doing this workshop, uh, you know, where I was attending a workshop, I was not leading the workshop and, I, and I've been a constant learner all my life. And that's another facet of my life that I'm very proud of is where I consistently learn both formal and informally. And in that workshop, there was a question that was thrown at me saying that what's your first memory? What is the first thing that you remember in your life? And it turned out on that particular day, my answer was that my first memory was watching a Bollywood film with my parents. Mm. And this was, you know, I was in my early 20s. And this would have been uh, what, 20 years ago, as a two, three year old, four year old child, I still remembered the story. I, in fact, remember the songs, you know, the Bollywood films have these songs in them, and I could even remember that song. And that was the answer that I gave. And later, when I was reflecting on my answer, I realized, oh, my God, can you imagine the kind of influence that films had on me? Mm. And, and, and subsequently, if you look back, there are those uh, moments in our lives, especially with uh, films, uh, they they remain with you and uh, this got me fascinated and and I started doing a lot of research around the impact of films and what films have done and the past 10 years have, have, I've spent a lot of time trying to understand how films change societies. So let me give you some examples of how Bollywood today has changed the way Indian society uh, dresses. India Indian fashion is nothing but Bollywood fashion uh, the language that we speak is very, you know, there's a lot of Bollywood that comes in. in can fact, judgment, a,
0: sorry, could you give a just brief for people that don't know what, what is Bollywood?
1: So, in films made in India predominantly, and and uh, Bollywood would be a term that's used for films that are made in Hindi, the, the Indian language. Of course, we have several other massive industries that. Uh, you know, we make films in Telugu and Tamil and Kannada, different languages. And they all have their different names, Tollywood and Kollywood. But Bollywood mm-hmm. is the one that the West refers to as Indian films. And, and I'm going to categorize all Indian films as, uh, you know, the Bollywood uh, in, in, in my language. So, in, in fact, uh, you know, customs and traditions in Indian weddings or in the way we run our festivals have changed babe, because we saw that happening in, bo- in a movie. And then now we've adapted it. So that's the impact it goes down. So uh, when I started studying this, I realized that a well-made film blends four very, very integral aspects of learning together. A Well-made film is audiovisual, it's storytelling, it's entertaining and it's emotional. As an educator, you can use any one of those four to teach. And here's a medium that's put all of it together and mm. it's present to the audience. The only unfortunate part of the movie and the film industry is that for a hundred years, we've used it predominantly for entertainment. We've not used it enough for education. And that's my work using a medium which the world knows, understands very intimately the world of film and content and using it in in an area which it can have a great impact. So that's the film pedagogy part of it. We, uh, LXL Ideas, the company that I had, we probably the first ones to use it as a part of the organized curriculum anywhere in the world. So the films that we make, uh, these are short films. These are based on research, but made by the brightest young film talent that India has predominantly. And these are very entertaining films which have won awards all over the world. So instead of teaching children through a workbook or a textbook or through an activity, the children are watching the film. And the film becomes the main message carrier. Once the film is done, then there are debates and discussions and activities and projects around the film. So I want you to imagine every film in that class as a chapter. Instead of mm. reading an English chapter, you're watching a film and then basically the film, you're doing the comprehension and you're doing the activities and the projects. The kids love it because it's a medium that they look forward to. Uh, the parents and the teachers are very excited about it. So I think yeah, uh, you know this is the first step that we've taken uh, and I think there's a long way to go and the concept that we have is relevant for the world so it's not just about what we do here in India and I would like to believe that the future of education is to prepare children to live a better life and what better way to uh, expose them to world cultures, to world stories, to world languages than by showing them films Super. and you know I just want to add here one simple uh, but very startling. Uh, know perspective about there are two of the biggest change makers on the planet. Number one is technology and we all know that you know how technology is changing our world. I'm not talking about the negative ones like climate and all of that stuff, right. So they of course they change makers. The second one happens to be migration. Hmm. So people are moving today more than they've ever moved today, right. Moving regions, moving countries, so any child growing up anywhere in the world, the parents or the educators have no clue which part of the world that child will actually grow up to live in. So preparing children for a global world is an integral part of education today. It's not enough to teach them math and science. We need to teach them about the world, world stories, challenges, cultures. And I, and I believe that world cinema is a great way of doing that. So if, if I were given a free hand, I would probably introduce world cinema as a part of a subject in every school across the planet.
0: Super, super interesting. Thank you for sharing that. And I actually had a a class when I I studied abroad in Rome, and I was there for a class and it was about film. And essentially, what we did is every class, we watched a film and then did something similar to what you're describing, which is the class then centered around that film. And I remember we watched Invictus, which is this film about the South African rugby team, and they won the Rugby World Cup right as the right. Country was going through political division and apartheid, and how that really was a lever. The sport was a lever for change, but then also the movie kind of told that story and acted as a representation of what other countries could could try to do something like that through sport, or and just the power of. It. And I felt the emotion because I'm a huge sports lover, and I I really love that idea, and I'm fully support and love the all that you're doing. Um, one. You know, the beauty of what you just mentioned
1: is the fact that it, it created a memory for you and that's what films do. Hmm. So it's not just another lesson in your life, right? It's, these are memories that are created and there's a very beautiful definition uh, of education that I've heard. When you've forgotten everything that you've learned in school and college, what remains is
0: education. that's funny that's kind of bad but i guess it is what it is what remains
1: you know the other things come in and go but what remains with you is a part of your education as a part of your learning and growing it's very powerful if you you live with that thought actually
0: yeah on on that note there's some quote i came across um, from your website which is you said you cannot teach students they learn from their environment and experiences. And I feel like that relates directly to the quote you just mentioned, which is like, what is really like teaching and call it information and knowledge? Sure, great, temporary, can apply to certain contexts, circumstances, and applications. But like in that quote, it's more about like the education that remains and like what you can take from your environment and the experiences of it and like the emotional side of it. And so I would love to hear about what is your approach with that idea and the movie concept not sorry not movie the film concept that comes from that and then how does that relate to education so what do you feel about you mentioned storytelling and there's an emotional aspect but maybe if you could share your approach on how all these things tie together and what your approach is to helping you mentioned k-12 through students right. young young individuals the future leaders of society and what is your perspective on creating a space and environment for them to be educated?
1: So as a response to that I I want to share a fact about the visual world and another psychological aspect of learning which has been completely undermined or mostly undermined the education systems. One of the problems of our present education system in most parts of the world is the idea of evaluating what you have taught right so most educators systems and you know educational systems in countries are are focusing a lot on how do you assess learning how do you assess, evaluate the learning outcomes you know i think there's a huge fascination for it but as an educator who's worked with children for so many years most of what happens in schools needs to be broadly divided in two parts. There's one part where there is a learning that's given to children and there is an outcome that that is measurable. The other aspect, which for me is the more bigger aspect, is in psychological parallels, you call them a seeding. So you sow a seed. And when you sow a seed, you don't get a fruit tomorrow morning or next year. Sometimes some plants take You know some trees take five or ten years. So I'm from Bangalore and we love our mangoes and a mango tree takes at least five to ten years to give out its first fruit Mm. and there are some trees that probably take even longer time. So there's a lot of learning that happens in school, at home Uh, and a classic example is a lot of parents uh, you know when they watch their teenagers, they think that their entire upbringing was a waste till the teenager becomes (laughs) this 23 25 year old and then they turn around and say not baby you know we' really lost him or lost her and then they turn around and come back because the seeds then prosper they they, they grow up so and I think this whole idea for me of uh, using film is not necessarily to bring about change the next day in the morning in the child that's not going to happen but to seed a lot of thoughts a lot of ideas, A lot of concepts in the minds of children without making, um, without giving them biases or without directing them what's right or wrong, allowing them to flower those learnings. So I think that's one aspect of uh, the film that I really like. The other one is extremely factual. If we look today around in the world, uh, most of the content that's created today is visual content. Mm. Right. Uh, we're creating and consuming more videos and visual content than we've ever done in the history of man because in the past we couldn't it was a very premium medium for a hundred years and before that it didn't even exist creating the visual content and suddenly we have this whole generation of young children who are so used to the visual content and yet when they go to schools in most parts of the world we're still teaching them reading and writing and I find that quite bizarre because the way the world is communicating, creating and consuming content, it's very visual. So visual storytelling is the basic form of education for today's world that we live in. Like someone who's not, who doesn't read well, it's very difficult to expect them to write. You know, if they're not exposed to the world if they've not well read, you know, you can't expect them to really write well. Similarly, if children are not exposed to well-made visual content, You can't expect them to create good content as they're growing up. The problem today with K-12 children is just the quality of content that they're exposed to. It's atrocious.
0: Hmm.
1: It's very substandard. You know, here's a very interesting thing about children's content and content in general. Whenever we use the word children's content, what comes to our mind always is those animations for five, six-year-olds and below. The age group between 6, 7 and 12, 13, there's very little content that's made. In fact, if you look at YouTube statistics also, the least amount of content that's made is that age group between 6 to 12. Wow! So this is 8-year-old, 9-year-old does not want to watch the kiddie animated stupid stuff which the 3-year-olds and 5-year-olds are watching. So they have no choice but to start consuming adult content. So there is a dearth of content in a world where we are a very young world more, I mean, what? In a country like India, half our population is uh, below 20 years old, right? So we're talking about very, very young countries across the world. A lot of Middle East countries, a lot of countries around the world are very young, whilst a few of them are older countries. So visual communication, visual storytelling is what we are also trying to propagate through the idea of film pedagogy, where uh, watching good films is like reading good books or reading good chapters. So tomorrow when you have to tell your story and you have to communicate your brand story, your entrepreneurial story, you, you do that very naturally. It's, a, it's like somebody who's learned uh, you know, comprehension and language, uh, English language while they were in school, they tend to communicate much better when they're in university and when they're in, in their workplaces. So it's going to be a similar, uh, the, you know, aspect I, I believe when they grow up.
0: A one thought that I had earlier I think you just brought it up was this concept of reading and writing and I feel like for myself personally like I'm a huge huge or I just I definitely read I spend a lot of time I read a lot of books or just I read probably 10 to 12 books a year Um, and so how do you envision and I also am a huge huge enormous fan of YouTube honestly I love YouTube and I've been able to fortunately that at least I think the algorithm has given me some good content. (laughs) Hopefully I'm not in my own little world of consuming content, but I really believe I've gotten a great mix of reading great books and then also going to YouTube and consuming great content. And I, I watch a lot of podcasts and stuff like that. So I'd love to hear from your point of view. You mentioned how reading and writing is definitely not on the trend. It's definitely way more with social media and TikTok and podcast interviews and YouTube and streaming. It's just, it's nuts how much stuff is out there. So what is, what is your perspective on the reading and writing part of what you do? Because I think for myself, at least it, it feels important and that there's still content out there and it's a skill to learn, but how do you just, I guess, quick question, like, how do you, do you feel like that's something that will be what was your thoughts on that?
1: Right So there's a concept called as learning styles in education. right uh, It's a recently old concept It's been around for almost hundred years. So if you uh, there are certain learners, you know children predominantly or anyone who's learning, they predominantly have a visual learning style or an auditory learning style or a kinesthetic of learning style. So that some children, they like to do things and that's when they remember. There are some people who like to see and watch and that's how they remember and some like to listen and that's how they remember. So there's auditory, kinesthetic and uh, there's visual learners. Uh, Always, whenever tests have been done in the 1970s, in the early 2000s, the visual learners have always been dominant. Mm. So people who, it's always been dominant but unfortunately in the world that I grew up in the 90s, uh, if you were not reading books, you were not supposed to be a very good student. You know, I was one of those who today, I believe the world accepts me because I love watching videos and I, I love listening to podcasts. So I get all my learning from there and I don't necessarily read. The world allows us to do it. But remember, visual learners have always been the majority. And now, if you if you look at the world and the children, the way they're growing up, they're going to, going to be a larger majority. So the question is not about whether reading is better or whether watching is better. Do we have the options that are available? And thankfully, the world gives options to visual learners to learn whatever you want. Just because I don't read doesn't mean that I'm not getting the knowledge or the information. Today, I do have both podcasts and videos and a lot of other visual learning aids. So for me, it's not even a debate. Will they exist together? Yes, they will and they should exist. But reading is on its way down and we have to accept it. More visual learners out there in the world. It's just that our education system is still so skewed towards reading, writing that the visual learners still feel slightly left behind. But thankfully, the working world and the world outside uh, gives an equal platform to both. You gotcha. do get great books and you do get great videos and podcasts.
0: That makes sense. Um, thank you for sharing your point of view, I I appreciate it because there's such a diverse range of ways of learning and approaching learning and it's cool to see yours and then also just what it's going to be in the future. Um, One thing that you mentioned that I would love to get into was kind of, you. there's learning where you, you learn, you know, and then you got to, Use that, and and there's a you use the term measurement, and so it's kind of like this idea of tests and quizzes and stuff like that. And there's other type of learning, which is we have to plant a seed and let it grow. And sometimes you mentioned like the mango trees; you don't get the fruit for five to ten years. And I think for myself and my own experience, I've been working on building a company for a year, and I haven't gotten the the fruit from it yet. But I, I know I will. But it's just I just haven't yet. And so from your point of view, how do you how do you have that become a part of education systems. Because I think that's something that people, the world today, at least that I've been brought up in, is so focused on measurement and being able to see a short-term result and improvement. So I'd love to hear what, what you're doing now or what you think you can do to create a space for people to be able to learn in environments where it's not strictly measured like that.
1: Right. You know, interestingly, even traditional schools have done a wonderful job, but the problem was the priority. In a traditional school, the priority is what happens within a classroom during that academic, uh, you know, period and the curriculum and the learning programs that happen. But what happens outside the classroom, in the school bus, on the corridors, in the school ground, uh, you know, in the theater, in the dramatics class, you know, in the canteen, now that is a lot of learning that's happening: social skills, emotional skills, people skills. You know, handling stress, handling uh, you know uh, both victory and defeat. You know, all of these skills have been uh, an integral part of schooling forever, or or an organized learning system. The problem for me was that we didn't give it as much importance as we gave the grades mm. in math and in languages. So. Uh, you know the the i mean the recommendation is not to go and completely change what you're doing but can you start not using language which teachers have traditionally used you know stop playing and focus on your studies uh, you know stop doing this and do your math better you know i think that is where i have a challenge with mm. so a lot of learning that's where uh, you know i believe that what we need to think of is school is not about a four walls and a teacher and a curriculum. Education happens when you actually remove all the four walls, remove the curriculum and a lot of freedom comes in and it comes in the playground and a lot of other activities that schools do. So uh, traditionally schools have done and new age schools tend to do that in a lot more organized manner but unfortunately this is in very small uh, sec, you know, very few schools, even in the US, if you look at it, the public schools are still very traditional. Even in you go to the UK, the public schools are still very traditional. It's just the new age schools that are talking and thinking like this. So, but if you go back to basics, if you go back to some of the world's oldest educational systems, like the Gurukul system in India, where the head of the system was a guru or you look at the Madrasa system in the Islamic world. They were all very experiential learning. And and we've heard this word experiential learning. And I think that's where uh, schools and parents need to focus on, uh, giving a lot of experiences and exposures. And what I loved about you, Luke, in in your introduction as well is you said that when you joined uh, your college in Boston, you said that I'm going to somebody told you that try and get as many experiences as you can. And you took that very seriously. And I, and I think how I wish I could explain this to every young kid going to a school or a college that it's your experiences outside the classrooms which are more important than what you do inside your classroom.
0: I fully agree. And I, I remember that moment crystal clear. I was before coming to college and I was sitting in a seminar and listening to a class and someone gave advice for me and other students who are coming in They're like, just, just try things, just try things. And I, I definitely took that to the max. I joined the rugby team. I joined a startup. I joined a club. And that was all within the first three days of being on campus and just went crazy with it. And honestly, I think the most important thing I learned from that wasn't even the things that I learned from the activities. And those were super fulfilling and and great. But what I really learned was what I didn't want to do. And I think that that was... Super important for me because by trying a lot of things, I got to say, I like that, but that's not what I want to do. I like that, that's not what I want to do. And so I over the if you have three years, four years, two years of some type of educ, even in high school, whatever it may be, even by yourself, if you can create a space for yourself and you can quickly start to knock down things that you don't want to do, and you're impassioned by that process. I I believe it's it's not super easy, but it's a manageable thing to start to figure out what you want to do. And so that for me was like, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to explore and just go to the max and just see what this stuff is all about and see what I want. And it's fortunately led me to this conversation. So that's pretty, pretty cool. (laughs) I think. uh...
1: You know, and, and I completely resonate with what you said. I think the idea of any individual going to a school or college is to try as many new things. And if I may just add one Uh, another aspect to that and learn to fail. Mm. I think one of the things that's formal education has been, uh, has failed in teaching is teaching children to fail. right? And it's it's beautiful to actually fall down and learn and then get up and try again. Uh, There's this mortal fear of failing or mortal fear of trying something new. So th- these two are quite correlated. You know, you don't want to try something new because you fear that you might fail. So it's okay to fail. And I think if you can you know, put this across to every young one out there that it's perfectly all right to fail. So they probably will try more new things.
0: For sure. And on that note, I think I've, I've heard that a lot, especially coming from an entrepreneurship background in school. And could you share a story of what that has meant for you in terms of like, okay, I maybe someone's listening, and they're like, okay, I I know it's okay to fail, but like for someone that hasn't maybe like tried something or has maybe just gone into something where there's a structured approach, like whether it's a job and you're kind of told what to do or it's education and you're told what to study, what is what does it mean to to fail? And what is it even, what did that If you've had an experience in your life, like what did, what did failure look like for you? And what was the thing that came after that? And what did you, what was the outcome of that? And what was the like process of that?
1: You know, very early in my career, when I completed my engineering and I told my mom that I want to, you know, pursue my career in working with schools and doing public speaking and life skills programs, my mom thought that I lost it. So so she figured out a way and uh, convinced me to go to a counselor. So Uh I was sent to a counselor. Uh, Thankfully, that was a genuine counselor. And, uh, you know, after hearing me out after a few sessions, he landed up counseling my mom. So we Uh all came to an amicable solution. And the solution was that I would be given a year's time. And I remember, you know, coming from a middle class Indian family, the only measure of success was that you had a steady job, Mm. and then you had a steady salary. And I think it's the same anywhere in the world. So I had to convince my mom that over the next one year, I'm going to earn as much as a steady job would have given me. And, uh, you know, from the outside, when I look back, uh, I did create numbers to show my mom at the end of the first year that I've made more money than what I would have made otherwise in a job. But then for the first three, four years, I remember I was not making money. Mm. It was tough. It was very, very hard. And those were the days when in India, the encouragement for entrepreneurs was almost next to zero, you know, the idea of being an entrepreneur was very alien. Uh, It was very easy to just join one of the big tech companies and work for them. So very, very tough times. And after two or three years, I realized even some of my close friends started doubting me, saying that, wow. "Are you sure that this is what you want to do? Because this doesn't seem to be working out." But somewhere deep within, I I was very sure where I was headed. Mm-hmm. I was very, uh, you know, clear that what the path that I've taken has, uh, you know, will be successful for me in in, in all aspects, financial, social, position, recognition-wise, and it did happen. And this was early 2000s. And and I don't remember between 2005, uh, I had made a list. You know, you need all those things in your life. Uh, You need a Mercedes car, you need a Harley Davidson bike, you need a uh, house. You know, you have all those lists when you're at college that you've made. And I think very early in my career. So the first four years was a struggle, the next couple of years, and I had more money than I ever wildly imagined. Uh, Very successful. And that continued, Luke. And I just wanted to share with you that. For the past uh, from 2004 up to 2020, we were doing bloody well, we did really, really well and all my life never imagined something like COVID would happen. We Mm. never planned for it and suddenly when COVID hit, schools were shut down right? Mm. because all my work was B2B. We were working with schools and schools had no clue what to do with themselves and on the other hand, my other large business was doing events and activations for uh, big businesses like Dell and Microsoft and Unilever and we were not doing events for children because there were no children outside and we were not doing anything in school. So uh, you know the COVID has taught me that how do you uh, run a business because no b-school taught us to manage cash flows when there's no income Right, so <laughs> yeah. You know, you manage cash flows when there's an income and there's an there's an outflow. How do you manage a cash flow when there's just an outflow and there's there's no income? So yeah. So if if I look back, there've been great uh, highs for us, uh, the initial blip, but now it's like a dream. When I look back, uh, uh, some of my closest friends stopped believing in me, and now uh, in the COVID, uh, everyone around me believed me that they knew that we're gonna bounce back. I think at some point, uh, you know, I had a doubt of myself saying that, do I now have the ability to bounce back from such a low that I never imagined I would be in. And uh, it was difficult and it's more difficult when you're successful. You know, for you to bounce back when you're very, very successful and you've now gone at a low uh, and the biggest person to doubt uh, my uh, bouncing back was myself. So I think now for me to work, because the whole world around you believes in you, your your team believes in you, your family believes in you, your friends, uh, your clients and your customers believe in you. But, you know, I was doubting myself. So, but it took me some time, very happy to report that I think uh, we've bounced back both as a country and because we left COVID behind, hopefully we don't have another wave. Uh, And, uh, you know, we bounced back as an organization and we're doing better work than we ever imagined in the past year. So, so the lows will keep coming.
0: Yeah. I feel like that, that for myself, I've had, it's been, I'm sure it's an entirely different, it's so, so personal for each person, but I think I've had a similar journey throughout the past year with just very many ups and downs. And it's, it really, I've come to the acceptance of just acceptance, honestly, just like there's, there's going to be. It's it kind of, at least for myself, go through the first few lows and you're like, cool, like I made it through and <laughs> you're feeling good. And then you're like, oh, wait, these things don't go away. And so it's just I think for myself, I found that, like you just said, just accepting that there are low points and being able to just just be in them and just know that they're there and know that there's other things coming is super at least for myself, it was just, it made me feel like, all right, it's all good. This is just part of the process. And one question I wanted to ask you from that just briefly was what, when you, when you are in a low, what, what do you do either mentally, emotionally, physically to, because I feel like that is kind of similar to the failure thing. Like when you're at that, that place, that is almost, it could be a breaking point what what are you what's your mechanism what's your thought process of like i'm gonna flip the switch and now either ride it out more or start to like trend upwards again
1: right i think as entrepreneurs if we peg our entire life around the success of our venture it's not the best place to be in Hmm. so for me personally i look at my life in three parts there is me the individual there is my friends and family and the world around me. And then there is my entrepreneurial venture, the, the organization that I've created. So while my organization was not doing really well, especially the recent COVID times, I got a hell of a lot of opportunity to spend time with myself. I'm an avid uh, endurance biker, I do long distances on my Harley. So uh, being on my bike and doing these long distance uh, rides have been, has been an absolute uh, you know, uh, breath of fresh air into my otherwise dull work life. Hobbies are a phenomenally good thing to bring you back into life. Hmm. So for me, my horse riding, my fitness, my uh, routine and my bike riding and my travel, my travel was cut because of COVID travel restrictions. But the other three were alive, and those constantly kept pumping in life into me. And, and one of the things that I always advise entrepreneurs, uh, in fact, every single interview that I've done to hire anybody for my organization, what is your hobby? What are you really really passionate about? When I when I hear a lot of people talk about work and say, no, I'm not talking about work. I know you want to give me the right answer because you need the job, but tell me what's your hobby. What is it that you love doing? When you're doing it, you're so lost that you forget the world, right? Mm. That, that's a hobby, right? It, it takes you into a zone. It gives you that mojo, which is what you require. The third piece happens to be my family, uh, my wife, my little one, a lot of my close buddies and friends, and, and of course, uh, the society that I live in, uh, they are also great boosters. So entrepreneurs tend to become loners a lot of times, and, and we've always heard that. And I think that's one of the challenges they've created for themselves right? Uh, staying away from friends, staying away from family. And and I can't give tell you how important that is, especially when you're on a low. They can be your biggest source of inspiration and your hobbies. So to answer your question, I think uh, if we can consistently keep our hobbies alive and keep our relationships alive, we will as entrepreneurs have our highs and lows. And when we have our highs, the joy becomes multiple fold when we share it with the people around us. You know, when I want to celebrate, I just can't go and you know do it by myself. I need those you know friends around me. And and and, and similarly, when you're on a low, you need someone to come and uh, you know probably tap, uh, you know give a pat on your shoulder. And uh, that's what friends and family do. So that's how I've kept myself, and I'm so grateful and thankful to all the people in my life.
0: Thank you for sharing that definitely it's home for me and I'll take some things. Actually, I was writing some things down as you're saying that and I will listen back and soak them in again. So thank you. Um, And
1: Here's something I have to share. You heard of the Dalai Lama. The what? The Dalai Lama, the the Buddhist monk. Yes, yes. yes. yes, So once in one of the, uh, you know, one of his talks, I was listening. And somebody in the audience, he's, supposed, he's a very funny person. He's very jovial and very light. You know, he's not like a serious religious leader, <laughs> a very light person. And they, uh, he was asked to tell a joke. So mm-hmm. the Dalai Lama says that, you know, I've seen a lot of life, and I find this very, very strange that for the first 40, 50 years of their life, most people that I see, you know, ignore health, ignore friends and family ignore what they like and don't like and they're all behind making the money and I've always seen that they make their money and the funny thing is once they've made the money then they spend the rest of their life spending the money to get back their friends their health and everything they lost
0: (laughs) that's funny so true
1: and it's so true
0: yeah um Thank you for sharing that. I wanted to ask you something that I think you mentioned on the the note of self-belief and how you, knowing at the start or throughout your journey that you were going to be successful in whatever capacity that meant for yourself. Um, And one thing, I was having a conversation with someone the other day about this show and they're saying we're having a personal conversation and you mentioned one thing that could be interesting to ask people is like, why do you matter why does the guest matter why do i as the host matter why does my friend matter and i feel like that gets down and relates to the concept of almost self-belief or thinking that or believing that you're on a path or you're passionate about something you're going to pursue it And so i'd love to hear for people that like when i remember when i first started my entrepreneurial journey it was just such a it was just such a like i was scared to send that first email about like an idea I had that someone that I knew and like, it's like, well, what if they don't like it? What are they? But I think having a context to be like, you matter and, you know, you, you got to pursue your thing is really important. So i love to ask you, why do you feel that you matter?
1: You know, I can give you a philosophical answer and a very uh, practical answer for that. Let me start with the philosophical answer. I'm, I'm a believer in, Uh, you know a supreme power you know without giving it a name or a religion but I do believe there's a supreme power that that kind of uh, you know creates all of the world that we live in and the energies that are around us so I was created a human uh, for a reason I was not made a a rat or a lizard on the wall I was created for a reason right and uh, the reason why I'm alive is because Uh, I need to make a difference. And if, when I look at the word, I need to make a difference. And when I look at most of the world, you know, almost everyone's life can be summed up in four or five sentences. You know, they're young kids who are going to school, the entire uh, idea of going to school is to get good grades and get into college. The entire idea of college is to get a job. And once you've got a job, your entire idea is to probably get married and have kids and have a house. And then your whole life revolves around taking care and growing them up. And eventually one day you die. You know, it's just like a typical life of person that lives on the planet. Uh, if you actually look at the lives of any animal out there in the forest, it's almost the same. You know, they do the same things. They learn their things when they grow And then they have their offsprings and then they die one day. For me, uh, living a life to create a world for myself is not what I'm here for. I'm here to make a difference, right? And in that I'm very realistic. Can I change the lives of five or six billion people that live on this planet? No, I can't, at least not now, not today. But can I make the difference to the lives of this bunch of 50 students who are there in this class? Uh, and I'm doing a workshop with them, I can. And, uh, you know, think about this. When I'm in this workshop, working with 50 teachers or 50 educators, they've given me the most precious thing of their life. They've given me their time hmm. because that time is never coming back to them. If these 50 teachers gave me that one hour, that one hour for them is never coming back. So I now have the responsibility to make sure that that 50 uh you know, ours that I was given, how do I add value to them? So I look at every simple thing that I'm doing from a question of what is my purpose over here? I'm here sitting with you on this podcast and there are going to be people who listen to this podcast. And if they spend the 30 minutes listening to this podcast, what have they taken back? And that's a responsibility that I have. And that's how, in these very little small things that we do, you make a difference. And I think it's worth living a lifetime if you've made a difference to one person. And that's where you start from. And one becomes multiples as you keep walking this journey. And over these 20 years, I think, uh, you know, managed to do that for multiple, I don't know the number. I've never counted. I would never want to count. But have I made a difference? I've very consciously tried to make a difference.
0: Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Thank you for that. And that was, I think that that goes on to the that kind of ties into the conversation that I was having with my friend, which is that idea of you really do matter. Because if you have a difference on one person throughout 80, 20, 100 years, however long you live in on earth, like that, that is that impacting that one person that one person can go and then impact like hundred thousand people potentially or maybe it's like so the ripple effects that are just not seen um and so i think it's a super super powerful thing to internalize and understand just one thing you can do i would love to wrap up briefly with one question that is quite similar to that one but is in a different context and is why does your work matter Uh, education, the topic and the
1: idea and the industry and the world of education it's a very serious matter right, so if you look at governments and schools and parents and educators they all take it very seriously and in all the seriousness we've made it very serious for the child and children don't engage with education as much as they should and my work is about trying to bring in some amount of joy and some amount of excitement and some amount of enjoyment for that child, uh, in that learning process. And, uh, and that's what we're trying to do at Alex Elias to bring the joy back in learning, to make it more exciting and fun. And that's why we matter.
0: I love it. I love that. And I love the concept of joy. And that's what this conversation brought me. So, Thank you for coming on, being guests and sharing what you've experienced and learned from this career. And I'm excited to see where LXL Ideas goes and to see the impact it has. And maybe one day I could participate in a session you teach, hopefully, (laughs) and get to connect in real life in person. Um, But thank you so much for coming on. It was a pleasure.
1: Absolute pleasure, Luke. And good luck to you. And I love the idea of you and this whole journey that you're doing through this podcast and uh, all the best to you. And uh, thank you so much. It was a pleasure being here.
0: And that wraps up today's episode. If you enjoyed the show, follow us on LinkedIn at whyitmatters and on Instagram at why underscore, it underscore, matters underscore. You will find our community of guests and listeners who are forming the next generation of changemakers. Come join the group of people leading humanity into the future. I'll see you all soon.